Life Audio. You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast. I'm John Stonge, and I'm glad you're here with us this week. We're currently studying the Gospel of Mark together and learning more about the life, ministry, and miracles of Jesus. We'll jump into today's teaching in just a moment, but first, let's hear a quick word from the sponsors of today's episode. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. This morning, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 14. The big question that we're going to be asking this morning is, are there consequences for speaking the truth? Curious what you think about that question even right at the outset. Are there consequences for speaking the truth? This is what it says in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at. We're picking up at verse 14 in Mark chapter 6, and it says this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, 
for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that you give to us to be able to read it and study it and internalize the teaching that you've given to us in it. Lord, we're just so grateful for what you've revealed to us. We're grateful that we get to read about the work that you've done throughout the course of human history. We get to read about the lives of people who lived generations before us. We get to see what it looks like to be men and women who are completely and fully devoted to your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we see that very much on display in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. We're grateful for John the Baptist's life and his testimony, how he continually pointed to your Son. And we pray, Father, that you would use our lives to point to your Son as well. We pray that we would be truth-tellers, very much like John the Baptist proved to be during the course of his life. And we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us right now. We pray that you'd speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I had a... I guess a bit of a weird experience this week that was both troubling and comforting at the same time, which really sounds like a strange combination of emotions, but that's kind of how I interpreted it after it, after it wrapped up. But on Thursday afternoon, I was invited to attend a prayer service over at Cairn University. I teach there during the semesters, and so uh, traditionally what they do is before each semester, they have a prayer service, and they invite those who work there and those who teach there to come and and, uh, worship together, and uh, it's a wonderful time of prayer. It's a wonderful time of singing. My wife was also at the service, but we didn't get to sit together. Uh, She was asked to read a portion of Scripture during that service, so she sat toward the front, and, uh, and that's where she was. But when I arrived, I took a seat toward the back of the room where several of my other friends were sitting, including James Richardson, right? So he could testify to the fact that I was there. We were sitting together for the worship service. And then after the worship service, I walked downstairs where there was a small reception where they had like finger foods and fruits and things like that. And up to that point, I was having a very normal day. Nothing out of the, out of the norm, you know, nothing unusual. But then I noticed that my phone was ringing in my pocket. It just kept ringing, and I wasn't really in a context where answering my phone felt appropriate, and I had it on silent, but I could feel it vibrating in my pocket, and I thought, okay, I wonder what that's all about, and it just kept ringing, and I thought, well, I'll check it in a little bit, like, cool your jets, whoever's calling me, like, I can't really talk on my phone here while I'm at this worship service, but I ignored it for a little bit, and it rang again, rang again, finally, I excused myself uh, from the reception afterward, and I wanted to see what was going on, and apparently... During the reception, I had missed several calls from my family, and um, uh, my wife, who knew I was planning to attend the worship service, didn't see me there. She was up toward the front. I was toward the back. She didn't see me there, and so she ended up calling my son Daniel to see 
if he knew where I was. And Daniel said, well, he left the house earlier and said that he was headed over to the college for the worship service. You didn't see him there? And she said, no, I didn't, I didn't see him. He didn't come. And uh, then she called our other children to find out if anyone had heard from me. And no one had heard from me. And the reason they hadn't heard from me is because I was at a worship service. I turned my phone off, right? Or I, wasn't, I was ignoring it. But then it, it got even worse. My son Daniel called my son Jay. If you know my son Jay, he's a local firefighter who responds to car crashes all the time. And he literally called him to find out if there had been a car crash or something like that. And basically at this point, while I'm snacking on sliced fruits and cheeses and just chatting with uh, some of my friends sitting around a table at this reception, my entire family was panicking because they literally thought I might be dead. That's literally what was going on. That's what I found out afterward. I have no idea how things progressed that rapidly, all right? But it went from a curiosity to genuine panic, and in a strange way, I have to admit that the, the genuine concern that they showed for my well-being, it actually made me feel loved. I guess I need to do a better job of answering my phone in the future, right? I also thought to myself, I was like, wow, you know, I guess they, they know that if I say I'm going to be somewhere, they expect me to, to be at the place that I, I say I'm going to be. Um, but at the same time, I, after the dust cleared and I was able to answer a call and, and just let everybody know, I, I actually did feel love that, that they, I thought, you know, you kind of wonder, like, would anyone care if I was gone? Apparently, they would care if I was gone, right? They made that abundantly clear. Well, the portion of Scripture that we just read from Mark chapter 6, it speaks of an actual death. It speaks of an actual death, and it also speaks about the ways in which multiple people responded to it. And specifically, we see in the passage from Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 14, it actually tells us about the death of John the Baptist and the ways in which he was treated during the brief days of his ministry and, uh, and while he remained faithful to proclaim the truth and point people to Jesus. There was a way he was responded to during that era and by the leaders and by the people of that time. And the Scripture reveals a variety of things to us, and I think these things are very interesting, and there's a major, major lesson that we could all take from this, and I think you'll notice this as we go along. But again, look at verse 14 in the verses immediately afterward. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet, like one of the, the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, Scripture refers to several kings by the name Herod. When you're going through the New Testament, you can see several people who are referred to by the name Herod. The specific Herod that's being spoken of here was a man named Herod Antipas, and he was uh, a very interesting individual. He was the ruler over Galilee and Perea. And as this portion of Scripture reveals, he had ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had a, a special ministry during the time of Christ. There are many people uh, There are many people in this world, like if you look at how a lot of people spend their time in this world, there are many people in this world that go out of their way to try to make their own name great. But when you look at John the Baptist's ministry... You can see that John never sought to do that regarding himself. 
His goal was to prepare the hearts of people to receive Jesus Christ. He wanted to to lift up the name of Jesus. So as often as he could, in whatever context he was given, he would testify to the greatness of Christ. He would point people to Christ. He even made mention of the fact that he said, you know, I'm not even worthy to to tie that man's sandals. That's how John referenced Jesus. He, He would testify to his greatness. Scripture reveals to us that John was a prophet. Now, Even though John's story is told to us here in the New Testament, many theologians refer to John the Baptist as the final Old Testament prophet. Have you ever heard him called that? Now, you don't have to answer out loud, but even before I tell you why he's called that, just think for a second. Why do you suppose they would refer to John the Baptist as the final Old Testament prophet? Many theologians call him that. Well, when you look in the Old Testament, you can see John the Baptist's ministry prophesied multiple places. You see in places like Isaiah chapter 40, you see it in Malachi chapter 3. John the Baptist's ministry was prophesied, and we also know, Scripture tells us that covenants are inaugurated with the shedding of blood. The new covenant didn't officially begin until Jesus was crucified, until He shed His blood on the cross. So the things taking place prior to the cross are basically the culmination of the Old Testament, the culmination of the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant begins at the cross, when Christ's blood was shed at the cross. And so you have John, who's that prophet, testifying to who Jesus is, and many refer to him as the, as the final Old Testament prophet. I'll show you a couple of these prophecies. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it speaks of John when it says, "...a voice cries..." In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So multiple times in the Old Testament, John the Baptist was spoken of, he was prophesied about, and he was talked about. And in his role as a prophet, as was typical of a true prophet, John was the type of guy who did not shy away from speaking the truth, even when it might be unpopular to do so, and even when speaking in such a way might actually cost him his life. In fact, when you look at the Old Testament prophets, you have, you have the real prophets and you have false prophets during the Old Testament era. The false prophets would just tell people whatever they wanted to hear, and the prophets that God sent would tell people what they needed to hear, and frequently what they needed to hear confronted what they wanted to hear. And so you have John the Baptist being one of those true prophets, saying things that sometimes were not very popular for him to say, but he would still say these things, and true prophets are willing to do that, by the way, because their allegiance to the Lord is greater, to their, it's greater than their allegiance to their own personal safety. Their allegiance to the Lord is greater than their allegiance to the treasures of this world. Their allegiance to the Lord is greater than their allegiance to the praise of men. That's the type of person that John the Baptist was. Now, when you look at verse 17 and the verses following in Mark 6, it goes on to tell us a little bit more here. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. 
But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So it's my personal opinion that, generally speaking, kings tend to find honest conversations with people who aren't afraid of them refreshing, that they tend to find conversations like that that could be honest uh, with people that just don't cower in fear from them, that they actually find it refreshing because it's not their normal kind of conversation. Most people don't speak to them that way. Most people come to the king looking to get something or walking in fear, just telling the king whatever he wants to hear. So it's, uh, it's rather rare when someone will interact with a king with just brutal honesty, not trying to get anything from him, and also not afraid of him. And that's how John the Baptist would interact with Herod. Herod was a wicked man, and yet when Herod would interact with John, he looked at John and he thought, you know what, I respect that guy. And Scripture tells us that Herod considered John holy, that he considered him a holy and righteous man. And even though he arrested him, he made a point to keep him safe, which is very interesting to see as the Scripture reveals it. He makes a point to keep him safe. And he takes great interest in the things that John would speak about, even though Scripture also tells us that he struggled to understand what John was talking about. He struggled to understand the message, but he was curious about it. He wanted to know more about it. But the Scripture also tells us about Herodias. Herodias was Herod's wife, and she hated John. She despised his honesty. She despised the fact that he openly spoke out against uh, her and her marriage to Herod because her marriage to, to Herod was an adulterous relationship. In fact, when you look at what history tells us, it reveals to us that Herod had divorced his wife, and Herodias had divorced her husband. And by the way, Herodias' husband was... Herod's brother, Philip, kind of an awkward Thanksgiving, right, you know? Um, But they divorced their spouses so they could marry one another. Now, this next part isn't in in Scripture, but I'll give you a little bit more detail about this. Um, Making matters even worse, Herodias' father was Herod's half-brother. Herodias' father was Herod's half-brother. Talk about a complicated family relationship. His name was Aristobulus. He was a half-brother of Herod. It's all these half-brothers, right? Um, So that actually made Herod not only her husband, but do the math. What else does that make her? See some of you shaking your head. He's also her half-uncle. He's her half-uncle and her husband, but prior to being her husband, she was married to his brother. So their marriage was both adulterous and incestuous. Sort of awkward, right? Kind of a weird thing, not really the healthiest way to relate to your family members. And so you have John, who looks at this, and he decides to say something about it. The Scripture tells us he didn't hesitate to speak out against the, the, what was very flagrant sexual sin that was being condoned by the king. John didn't hesitate to bring it up. Nobody else was going to bring this up to the king. Nobody else was going to talk about this. Nobody else was going to bring this up to the king's wife. No one would say that because what do they have the power to do? They have the power to kill you. So no one's going to confront them. No one's going to say anything except John did. And I find that very interesting. And when I look at that, I th- his bravery reminds me of a lot of those who in our era right now are not afraid to call out sexual sin in our culture. 
You know, when I look at that, even in our culture right now, we live in a day when our leaders and our entertainers and other people of influence are actively encouraging our culture to embrace all forms of sexual sin. Is that not like right in our face all the time right now? Is that not the big thing that everyone of influence or most people of influence seem to be encouraging everybody to embrace? And you look at that and you think, all right, that is wicked, it is detestable, it is unhealthy, and yet the culture is being influenced over and over and over again to embrace that. And depending on whether or not you or I speak up or where we speak up, there may be real consequences for what we say. There are people that are threatened in a variety of ways. There are people that lose their their source of, of making a living if they confront certain things. And here you have John the Baptist, and what does he do? He has no hesitation of speaking the truth. He doesn't hesitate. He speaks the truth, even though he understood the potential consequences. He spoke up anyway. He knew there might be consequences, but he still spoke up. Now, it's interesting to look at John the Baptist's actions and to think about how God has operated with prophets and how they, how they functioned in the past. Most of the time, if you ask people, what does a prophet do? They will tell you, well, the Lord uses prophets to predict the future. And that statement's correct. We would agree with that, right? The Lord uses prophets to predict the future. We see that over and over again in Scripture. The Lord uses prophets to predict the future. But there's something else that prophets do, and it could be argued that they probably do this second thing more than they do that first thing. God often raises up prophets not only to just predict the future, but to call a culture to repent of its sin. And those prophets will just call it out. They'll just say it. So if the Lord was to send a prophet to our culture right now, you and I know what those prophets would be saying, right? They'd be calling out the various forms of immorality that we as a culture have embraced, and we'd be invited to repent. And when you look at how that works out in Scripture, when you look at how how that happens throughout the Old Testament as you watch those prophets do that, as they call out the culture, as they bring all these sorts of things up, they're usually despised by the culture for doing so. And the culture usually rejects what they have to say. But there are typically a remnant of people in each culture who accept the need to repent and say, you know what, you're right. There's usually a smaller number who accept the need to repent, and they do so. And I look at this sort of thing, and I think, you know, for those of us who are troubled by what we see taking place in our culture, I hope we pray for our culture, first of all, because our culture needs prayer. We need prayer. Our culture needs prayer. Your neighbors need prayer. Your family needs prayer. Your employers need prayer. The people that you serve need prayer. We need need the Lord to directly intervene. Our school systems need prayer. Our children need prayer. Teenagers need prayer, right? The whole thing. We all need prayer. We need the Lord's strength to help us in the midst of a season that has very, very obvious marks of darkness. And for those of us who are troubled by what we see taking place in our culture, I wonder, to what degree would we be willing to speak the truth? I think many people see and experience the things that we see, we see and experience, but because of the ramifications of speaking the truth, sometimes we're, we wonder, you know, maybe it'd be better if I just don't say anything. Or I don't want to stir the pot, or I don't want to make anyone angry, or I don't want to come across as, 
an unloving Christian or something along those lines. We really wrestle with those things. And I will say, you know, there's a time where, you know, we, we certainly want to ask the Lord for wisdom in how we say things and the timing of how we say things and whether we say something in a one-on-one type of context instead of yelling it to a group or whatever it may be. Um, let me be transparent with you for just a moment. You've probably already noticed this if we've known each other for a while. Um, I have made it a, a point during the years of my, my pastoral ministry to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. So what that means is that whatever Scripture brings up, I don't skip it. So if it brings up a difficult or an awkward subject that would be easier to avoid than to address, I don't skip it. I just want to preach what the Scripture says, the whole counsel of God's Word. By the way, this week, each week, this is the first week of the year, um, I get to create, I'm an organizational nerd, understand that, right? I get to create a new folder on my computer for that year's sermon notes. And so I I did that this week, and I looked, and my wife and I, we've had the privilege to serve here since 2008, and I, I always look at that, and each of those each of those folders, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, I look at that. It's a year of our life and a year of putting together messages, me preaching, things like that. And I was looking at that, and I was like, wow, that, those, that's a lot of folders now, right? There's, there's a lot of folders there. We've been uh, serving here for 15 and a half years, and then I was curious. I was like, how many, how many messages is that? And so I looked, and it's about 775 messages. And then last night, I got even more curious. I didn't even tell my wife this stat. I figure, I know about how long I typically preach when I preach a sermon, so I did the math on how many minutes, then I wanted to know how many hours that was, and then I wanted to know what that translated to in days, if I just preached one, like all those messages straight through. And it was 23 days of straight preaching. So like if I just started and never stopped preaching for 23 straight days, it would incorporate all 775 of those messages. I might, might need a cough drop somewhere along the, the line there. But the, the, I, I did think that was kind of interesting to do the math on that, but I have to tell you, and those of you that have been here long enough know, that I make a point to not skip the hard stuff when we, when we come across that in Scripture. My conscience won't let me skip it. Even when, even when awkward things come up, even like in this portion of Scripture, there's some awkward stuff with what John is confronting there. Uh, but I don't like skipping the hard stuff. I don't like skipping the sensitive parts. But in doing so, I'll also admit to you that at times I have opened myself up to some criticism for choosing to do so. Uh, I will admit that I am not a fan of some of the letters or emails or slander I've received over the course of the past 25 years of my life of serving in pastoral ministry for speaking the truth. But what I've also learned is that I can live with it. I can actually live with it. It, And I'm also grateful, and this is a compliment to our church, it's it's not super common. I I don't have to deal with it a ton. Like, every now and then I'll deal with it, but it's rare. Like, as it is right now, it's been a while since, maybe, you know, maybe 2024 will be different. Maybe somebody will break this trend. It's been a while. It's been a few years since I've really had to deal with anything like that. But on occasion, every now and then, there'll be something like that that, that comes up, and you're like, oh, all right. <clears throat> and I look at it, and I'm like, you know what? I've kind of learned to just live with it. As it, it just kind of comes with if you choose to speak the truth. And it's actually, this will sound strange, I admit, 
But it actually is something that I've started to look at as a little bit helpful when you get some of those critiques or maybe if, like some, some barbs that sting at first, but then after a little while you're like, no, that's actually useful because it reminds me of the fact that the truth of the gospel actually offends before it heals. There are aspects of the gospel that when we first hear them, it's kind of offensive to be told that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So I guess I shouldn't be shocked if sometimes that message has a little bit of an offensive feel to it at first, but then as you think about it, then it kind of heals when you realize, yeah, I needed to hear that, so I'd realize that I needed Jesus to rescue me. So there's that. But then I also like the fact that sometimes when you get some of those those you know, words that feel like they sting a little bit when you first hear them, it kind of reminds me that, um, well, I, I feel like it humbles me, and it makes me think through whether or not I could have said what I said more precisely or less casually. You know, was there a better way that I could have said that? So that's another thing that I sometimes think about. And then a third thing that I notice that's a, a direct benefit that comes from it is that it honestly keeps me relying on Jesus for strength. And I think, you know, the only way you get to the finish line when you try and do something like that is you have to rely on Christ for strength. And so I just want to remind you, if you ever find yourself in a similar spot, and I know that several, if not many of you, already do, and some of you at some point in the future probably will as well, but if the Lord ever entrusts you with similar responsibilities, where you're called to proclaim the Scriptures or teach people the Word of God or or help people grow in their walk with Christ, don't skip the hard stuff tell the truth, and be confident that the Lord is going to teach you very helpful things in that process. He'll refine you. You'll notice some improvements to your own character, even when you get a few of those arrows now and then. And the older you get, they don't hurt as much as they do when you're younger. When I was younger, they hurt a lot more than they do now. Now they're uncomfortable, but they used to stop me in my tracks. And I hope that give me like another 20 years, and maybe I won't even feel them. I'll be like, arrows. You can't hurt steel. What are you trying to do? My dad always says that. You can't hurt steel, right? Can I apply that to that context? I don't know, all right? But either way, don't be afraid to speak the truth, even if you get kind of uh, attacked at times for it. But the Scripture goes on to tell us a few other things. When you look at verses 21 to 24, it says, But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles, and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she, went out and, asked, and she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. So the scripture tells us that as Herod gave this banquet to celebrate his own birthday, his niece, the daughter of Herodias, she dances for Herod and his guests. She would have been a teenager at the time, and the implication is that this dance was inappropriate in nature, but it pleased these men of low character, and they were all entertained by it, and they're like, oh, wonderful, this is so great. And so Herod thinks, oh, everybody's in good spirits here. I'm going to make a grand showing of how, how gracious I am of, of a leader, and I'm going to offer this, this young girl up to half of my kingdom. He offers her whatever she wants in return. 
And she goes to her mother, and as her mother suggests, she requests the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She requests the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the Scripture tells us this actually grieves the king because he couldn't go back on his word. If he, if he went back on his word, and keep in mind who's there, right? The Scripture says his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. If he goes back on his word, that now comes against the authority of his word, as that's one of the things that he uses to try and keep people in line. And so having said what he said, he can't go back on it because they treated his words as law. And so the king is grieved because he knows he can't go back on this. And so he actually, he honors this vile request. He gets the executioner and he tells him, go and execute John the Baptist and bring his head here. And when I look at this, there's a variety of things that I feel when I look at a portion of scripture like this, but I can't help but feel troubled by the, disres- the disrespectful way that John the Baptist was treated as his life was taken from him. Because his life wasn't just, he wasn't just executed, he was made a spectacle, right? They, they bring his head on a platter just to make fun of him, to mock him, right? To take his head, to serve it on a platter like that, it's such a dark and disgusting act. Like, who thinks to do something like that? But this is what, where their thinking was. This is where the depth of the, de- the depravity of their own hearts And I look at this and I think, man, in some ways, wouldn't it have been better for John to die maybe a more respectable death, something that seemed a bit more honorable and triumphant or or, or something like that? But as the history of the church demonstrates, when you look at the history of the church, for many believers, the call to discipleship is also a call to experience a disrespectful and humiliating death. And I guess that shouldn't shock us. Because that's exactly what Jesus endured on our behalf. It's the exact same thing Jesus endured for us. When you think about what Christ was willing to endure for for you and for me, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was spat upon, and he was nailed to a criminal's cross. Scripture reveals to us that he died a humiliating and torturous death And it was at the hands of wicked men in order to pay for the wickedness of those who didn't even realize they needed him. So Jesus, one who is fully innocent, dying for the sins of those who had committed all kinds of wickedness and dying in a humiliating way where he was mocked, where he was tortured, where he was made fun of, where he was spat upon, where he was was encouraged to do miraculous things in a way that was spiteful. And yet Jesus endured all of that for you and for me. And then you look at this and you just kind of think about it. You take it all together and you realize there are consequences for speaking the truth, aren't there? There's consequences for speaking the truth. John experienced them for calling out sexual sin. That's what he was doing in his culture. John called out the sexual sin of those who were in positions of influence. And they took his head. Jesus experienced these consequences for revealing, first of all, that he is God, and then also revealing that as God, he has the capacity to forgive sin. What was the main accusation that people brought against Jesus as they brought him to crucifixion? They said, this guy claims to be God. He claims to be God. Well, it's not a problem if you're telling the truth. And he was telling the truth that he is God. And that he has the capacity to forgive sin. He told the truth. And I look at this and I think, you and I may experience this as well. 
as our lives and our words point people to Jesus. And here's the thing. That's okay. We aren't the first and we won't be the last. I love portions of Scripture like this because they actually show us what it looks like to to truly be a fully devoted follower of Christ. I think there are a lot of people in this world that come to Jesus primarily thinking about what they might be able to get from Him. And we do get very wonderful things from Him. But then Scriptures like this remind us there are consequences for speaking the truth. And I don't think we should be surprised if we experience them. So in love for Christ's glory, and for the benefit of those that he places in our lives. Let's be people who live truth and speak truth so that others, by the grace of God, also have the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ, to hear the truth of his gospel, come to faith in him, and experience the forgiveness of their sin, the rescue and redemption from the darkness of this world, and hope beyond this world that nothing in this world can steal or damage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together. Thank you, Lord, for those that came before us that were willing to say hard things in the midst of a generation that wasn't very receptive and among people that had malicious motives. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that we could look at someone like John the Baptist and see that without fail, he testified to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as your Spirit worked in him, John was speaking words that, that spoke to the consciences of those who needed to hear what he had to say. You used him to prepare hearts to receive your Son. And even as, as Herod and Herodias were hearing his, his preaching... They had the opportunity. They were given the opportunity to repent of their sin, to come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, to experience new life. We see what they did with it, but Lord, you did give them that opportunity. Father, we're just so grateful for the fact that you have done miraculous things in our lives. I imagine that for many of us, we could testify to the fact that the first time we heard the truth of your word, it offended us. Maybe it pointed out something that we were embracing in our lives that was unhealthy and unwell, something that, sh- that really didn't belong there, something that was dishonoring to your name. Maybe it got pointed out to us. Maybe we were reading something in your, in your word and it confronted something that we would prefer to just leave alone, and you were inviting us to repent of our unbelief and repent of our wickedness. Lord, we're grateful that we have the privilege to do so. We're also grateful for the fact that when we look at what your word says about us now, even though we still struggle with sin and we wrestle with these things daily, Lord, we know that we do that. We're also grateful for the fact that as your son, Jesus Christ, lives within anyone who trusts in him, as you see those who, who are united to Christ, you don't see our sin. You see us as holy and blameless. Your word tells us we are holy and blameless in your sight. You see us in a brand new way. So, Lord, we pray for those that we love, those in our culture, those in our families, those that we work with, those that we serve, that as of yet do not know you, who are all enmeshed in the things of this world and thinking that somehow they're going to find rescue and redemption through temporary things, Lord, or even a sense of identity through their own wickedness and identifying with all sorts of things that are unhealthy and unwell. Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes to see their need for you. 
We pray that we might be truth-tellers in their life who speak the truth of the gospel and model it in our day-to-day lives, and that they would experience the hope, the forgiveness, the new life, the redemption, the eternal joy that you've given us through your Son, that they would experience that as well so that they would see and realize that the things of this world are not going to satisfy the deepest longings of their hearts. The deepest longing of our hearts, Lord, could only be satisfied through your Son. So we're grateful for these reminders. We're grateful for whomever spoke the truth of the gospel into our lives where we first heard it and understood it. And we're grateful for these reminders today as we look at your word. Lord, thank you so much for your presence with us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your guidance. We pray that we would walk with you faithfully day in and day out. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.